Due to a technical issue, we've had to use our backup audio recording source for this message. That means the audio quality is not as high as it normally is. Thanks for your understanding, and we believe you're still going to be blessed by this Bible study. If you have your Bible, I hope you do, please take it and open it with me to the book of Exodus. Uh, we're our study through Exodus. We're in chapter 21 and verses 1 to 11. Here's the scene that we're in. God's delivered Israel from out of their bondage in Egypt. He's brought them through the Red Sea. He's brought them into the wilderness. He's brought them to uh, Mount Sinai. Moses has gone up Mount Sinai, and he's come back down with the Ten Commandments. Uh, but he's got more than the Ten Commandments given to him by God for the people. He also has something given to him called the Book of the Covenant. Now, the Book of the Covenant are specific laws given to govern the people of Israel. As Canadians, we have federal laws that we have to abide by if we live in this country. And Israelites, back then, they had a law that they had to abide by too. Theirs was just given to them by God. Which would be really important uh, if you remember our context. Two million Jews have left Egypt in the wilderness, wandering around, on their way to the Promised Land. Can you imagine what it would look like if there was no rules given to them as they did that for 40 years. Complete anarchy and chaos would ensue. So these rules were for them and for their sake. The Book of the Covenant contains civil laws that help them to know how to apply the Ten Commandments to their everyday life. A couple weeks ago, Jeff started to walk us through the Book of the Covenant uh, when he preached through Exodus chapter 20, verses 22 to 26, and there we saw laws about right worship. Tonight we pick things up in the very beginning of chapter 21. And I'm going to read our text for us, the first 11 verses. Now these are the rules that you shall set before them. This is God speaking to Moses. When you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve six years. And in the seventh, he shall go out free for nothing. If he comes in single, he shall go out single. If he comes in married, then his wife shall go out with him. If his master gives him a wife and she bears him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall be her masters and he shall go out alone. But if the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife, and my children, I will not go out free. Then his master shall bring him to God and he shall bring him to the door or the doorpost. And his master shall bore his ear through with an awl and he shall be his slave forever. When a man sells his daughter as a slave, she shall not go out as the male slaves do. If she does not please her master, who has designated her for himself, then he shall let her be redeemed. He shall have no right to sell her to a foreign people, since he has broken faith with her. If he designates her for his son, he shall deal with her as with a daughter. If he takes another wife to himself, he shall not diminish her food, her clothing, or her marital rights. If he does not do these three things for her, she shall go out for nothing without payment of money." And aren't you glad you came to church tonight? (laughs) Pretty self-explanatory stuff, eh? Because read it and go home and learn how to apply this instinctively and intuitively to our lives, I'm sure. This is a side note, so I'm going to do this one really quick. We do verses like this in the Bible because we believe the entirety of the Scripture is God's Word. What you don't need is Jeff or myself or any other preacher coming in and just giving you our thoughts, our opinions, our commentary on pop culture. We need to open up the Word of God and hear it all, understand it all, wrestle with it all. If we believe as we do that it's inerrant, Holy Spirit inspired God's Word to His people. We teach the books of the Bible because we want to have the whole counsel of God's Word, not just picking and choosing certain things. Because I can tell you, if you're just picking and choosing verses, we're not picking Exodus 21 verses 1 to 11 tonight. But we honor and care about God's word so much that we are going to walk through it together. And so, verses 1 to 6 in our text is talking about and giving details about male slaves. In verse 2 it says that uh, a Hebrew could purchase another Hebrew as a slave. And this was never a lifetime purchase up front. There was a limit on the duration of the agreement between the slave and his master. The agreement between both parties would last six years only, and in the seventh year, the slave could go free for nothing. He didn't have to go, but he could. But there were some stipulations to this agreement. 
the, if the Hebrew slave comes into the agreement already married, then when it's his time for him to go free in the seventh year, his wife would go with him. But if a master gives his slave a wife while he is in the master's service, then at the end of the six years, the male slave could go free, but his new wife would not be free to leave at that time. And that sounds really harsh. Sounds awful. But I want you to consider a couple things. A slave did not have to take a new wife while he was in his slavery. That was his choice. He could wait till he was free before getting married. The woman who might have been given to him as a wife would have been a slave at the time she's given in marriage. She still owed her own debt to her master, and getting married didn't nullify her outstanding debt. That's why she couldn't go free right away with him. If the male slave decided to get married while in slavery, when the time came for his freedom, he could leave without his wife and simply wait for her to finish paying off her contract. That was an option, and they could be reunited, reunited after that. Or, as our text says, the newly married slave, who is now a free man, could choose to make his slavery to his master a permanent relationship. We see that in verses 5 and 6. It says, but if the plain slave, sorry, plainly says, I love my master, my wife, and my children, I will not go out free. Then his master shall bring him to God, and he shall bring him to the door or the doorpost, and his master shall bore his ear through with an awl, and he shall be his slave forever. Now, if a, if, a, if, a, if a Hebrew man who was a slave for six years ever came to this point in his life where he had the opportunity to finally go free and chose to be a slave forever, makes you wonder how rough that, that last six years really was. For you to reject your freedom and instead become someone else's slave forever by choice. Free, freed slaves would do this if they had an incredible master. If he chose this, he would stay with his new wife and any kids they had together. Verses 1 to 6, male slaves. Verse 7 to 11 addresses female slaves. Now, for us to better understand what's said in these verses, we need to consider the reality of arranged marriages in this time and in this culture. See, a female slave could be purchased as a wife with the bride price or the dowry paid to her father. Not uncommon in those days. A man could purchase her for himself to be his wife, or she could be given to his son as a wife for him. Now, verse 8 says that if this arranged marriage didn't go through, then she could be redeemed back to her family, but she could never be sold to foreigners. If the slave woman became the wife of the master's son, then the master would treat her as his own daughter. If the female slave was brought in as a wife, then she would be provided for and cared for as a wife, one way or the other. If she wasn't cared for as a wife, or if the master or son took another to be a wife and diminished her rights of food and clothing and marital rights, the slave woman was to go out free for nothing, not waiting for six years, on, on the spot, free. Those are 11 neat and tidy little verses in Exodus. Next week, Jeff's going to pick things up in verse 12. And I think after an explanation like that, we can just go home. <laughs> now we can't. You want to know why? Because any time verses like Exodus chapter 21, verses 1 to 11 are read out loud, uh, something happens in the room. You might not realize it all the time, but most of the time you realize it. Big elephant. <laughs> walks in, plops his seat down right beside us, and asks the question, are you going to deal with me, or are you not going to deal with me? Are you going to address my presence in the room with you all, or are you going to pretend that I do not exist? Have you heard the phrase before, the elephant in the room? I put the expression on your outlines, if you don't know what it is yet. The expression, the elephant in the room, is a metaphorical idiom in English for an important or enormous topic, question, or controversial issue that is obvious or that everyone knows about but no one mentions or wants to discuss because it makes at least some of them uncomfortable or is personally, socially, or politically embarrassing, controversial, inflammatory, or dangerous. There is an enormous elephant who made his way into this room tonight, and he makes his way into any room where Exodus 21 verses 1 to 11 are read from the Bible. I picture him right now, he's here, he's huge. 
I was going to say he's like 8,000 pounds, and I did research, and like elephants are around 8,000 pounds. But then all of a sudden, he's like, he's like 100,000 pounds. Like, this guy is huge. He is huge, and he's not going anywhere anytime soon. So what is this elephant that shows up in the room anytime these verses are read? Well, this is going to be your next, your first filling. The elephant in the room today, when we look at Exodus chapter 21, verses 1 to 11, is this. God doesn't seem to have a problem with slavery in the Bible. God doesn't seem to have a problem with slavery in the Bible. Now, I don't get the sense God has a problem with slavery when we look at these verses. Do you get that sense just when you read them? Does it sound like he's really opposed to it? He's the one giving the law to Moses to give to the people. This is pretty big. Now, this elephant doesn't show up only in these select few verses. Slavery is a common institution that can be seen throughout all the pages of the scriptures. In the Old Testament, the Hebrew word for slave or servant is the word bed. And in the Old Testament, it comes up 1,100 times in either its noun or verb forms. All over the Old Testament. And then you get to the New Testament. There's the Greek word doulos, which means slave, and it's in the New Testament 150 times in its various forms. Slavery is an institution that's woven all throughout the pages of the Bible. So what do we mean when we use the word slave? This definition is on your outline as well. It's a person who is wholly subject to the will of another, one who has no will of his own, but whose person and services are wholly under the control of another. What do people do with this elephant when he shows up? Well, there are various responses. I'm going to give you a few of them. Some people use slavery in the Bible as a means to attack God's character. They might say something like this, some people. Since God is obviously pro-slavery, then that makes him a moral monster, since slavery is immoral. And nobody should ever believe in or worship a God like that. Ever heard anyone say that before? Read that online before? I've this week read it a lot. Some people are embarrassed for God and try to cover for him when the conversation moves to the topic of slavery in the Bible. When it comes to hard topics like slavery in the Bible, some Christians treat God the way they treat their weird old uncle Larry when they have friends over. Like if you brought a friend over for dinner and Uncle Larry was there and you've been drinking a little bit and you say to your friends, oh, that's just Uncle Larry. Most of the time he's like a really, really, really nice guy. But sometimes he gets a little weird. Let's go to the living room and leave him alone when he gets like that. And we do the same things with God. Think we're doing him a favor. We say, like, God is usually really super awesome, but then every once in a while we come upon these slavery verses and he gets a little weird. But it's only every now and then, so we don't make too much of a big deal out of it. And so some people can dance around the topic when it comes up or refuse to touch it with a 10 foot pole. Other people use the slavery in the Bible as a means to justify atrocities like the transatlantic and the American slave trades that took place from the 16th to the 19th century. These people would argue that since the Bible talks about slavery, then everything done in the name of slavery is both good and permissible. Now for the record, the transatlantic and American slave trades were a gross and wicked perversion of anything the Bible says about slavery. And they should be absolutely condemned. You may not have known this, but there is one proof text in the Bible that would have completely destroyed the entire transatlantic slave trade before it ever got off the ground if people actually wanted to apply the Bible to that situation when it arose. It's in our same chapter, in Exodus chapter 1, and a few verses later, in verse 16, it says this. Whoever steals a man and sells him, and anyone found in possession of him, shall be put to death. Well, that's what the slave trade was built upon, if nothing else. Stealing men and women and making them slaves. So if the Old Testament laws were enacted during the slave trade, then everyone who participated in it would have been put to death. You wouldn't have a slave trade if everyone doing it was dead. So, I just want to thank God that genuine Christians were the ones who actually stood up and opposed the slave trade and had it abolished in 1807. Now, those are just a sample, just a sample 
of some of the different ways people could respond to our elephant in the room. But what about us? What are we going to do with this elephant in the room now that he has shown his face in our service tonight? Well, here's what we're going to do. We're not going to avoid him. We're going to grab him by the ears, gently, and we're going to look him in the face. And we're going to try to get to the bottom of it. We're going to try to work towards that. We're going to work hard to understand this issue, this elephant, that says God seems to have no problem with slavery in the Bible. Now, before we go any further, there are some things we need to highlight up front when we begin to try and understand a topic like this. These few things I'm about to share with you should be used when trying to understand any difficult portion in the Bible, not just slavery. I've listed these on your outlines for you as well. First one is that there are things in the Bible that are hard to understand. We just have to always know that going into the Bible. There are things in the Bible that are hard to understand. We should know that by now. We're going to be challenged in our thinking by a lot of different things in the Bible, which that should make sense to us. That some stuff in the Bible is going to be hard to understand. It's really simple. Because God is God and we're not. His ways are so high and far above our ways. We don't get it easily. Sometimes we don't get it at all, this side of heaven. Some things we're going to have to ask them in heaven. It's hard. Second, I put, we can't answer every potential question about a single topic in one setting. So we're going to spend this whole message talking about slavery in the Bible, but that doesn't mean we'll be able to turn over every stone and examine every single angle the Bible has on this topic. To be honest, we're going to barely scratch the surface on the topic here tonight. So don't be like, well, what, the, what about Leviticus 25? And what about this verse? And what about all these verses? We're probably not going to get to any of them. But write them down, jot them down, bring them to home group this week, and we'll talk about them there on Wednesday or Tuesday night. Another thing we need heading into difficult topics, we need humility. We need humility. We always need humility when coming to the scriptures to learn what they say. But I want to highlight how we need humility in a very, very specific way when coming to topics like we're addressing here tonight. See, we can't look at the scripture through the lens of our current culture and our modern sensibilities and judge the things that we see in the Bible by the way we live our life today. As if our life today is the highest standard by which to judge anything. Different cultures in different times did some things differently than we do them today. But just because they are different, it does not necessarily mean that their way is better or worse. Sometimes it's better, sometimes it's worse. People in ancient times and in ancient cultures are not less human than we are today. They're not less intelligent as human beings. They're not more or less moral because they live in a different era, in a different time, and speak a different language. They aren't cavemen. They were also created in the image of God like you and I are. And so we need to tread lightly how we assess what we see and hear when looking at other cultures. Just because they do it different does not necessarily mean it's wrong or right. It takes this kind of humility to, to know that knows that our culture, our current culture, is not the king of all the cultures that have ever existed. If we're to come to the text of the Bible and come away learning something, we need humility. Another thing we need is that we should want to avoid hypocrisy. Quick show of hands, who here wants to be a hypocrite? Quick. That's what I thought, I knew that. Because it would be very awkward, it would be really awkward for all of us if we were to get up on our high horses and start condemning certain things in the Bible only to realize that we do the very things that we're condemning in other people. We need to tread cautiously when it comes to the topic of slavery in the Bible. Lastly here, we need to let the bigger and clearer passages in the Bible help interpret the less clear passages. You know what the whole point of the Bible is? Him. The whole point is Him. And you know what He's like? Really good. God is really good. He's like unfathomably good. Full of grace and mercy. He is truth. He is the way. He is the life. Tender and compassionate. That's our God. And, and what, what's the pinnacle of the story of the Bible that displays the nature and the character of God more clearly than anything else? The cross. In the cross of Christ, we see God's love for a sinful and broken humanity. And instead of giving what, us all what we deserve, which is a one-way ticket to hell, instead of giving us that, He came in the person of His Son. 
He lived the life and went to the cross and took our sins upon his sinless self and died in our place. He took hell for us. He was buried and he rose. And then by faith, if you believe in him, you can have eternal life. You don't deserve it. He gives it to you as a gift. Does that sound like a cruel, moral monster? Or does that sound like the best person you've ever heard of in your life? Because that's who God is. And that's what we need to understand what the entirety of the scripture is about. We need to understand that. God is love. And so when we get to really hard topics that are really hard to understand, our default position should not be, look at this, God's a monster. It should be God's love. I know this because of the cross. So, however difficult this issue is that I'm facing, I'm going to give God the benefit of the doubt that there's a good reason or a good answer behind something so challenging. This is a very sensitive and difficult subject matter. And so I want you guys to know there's room to wrestle with the things that we're discussing here tonight. And you don't have to have everything all figured out by the time you leave here tonight. You are allowed to wrestle with the things you hear. And because I'm talking about highly sensitive subject material, like slavery, I'm bound to say something uh, that will not be received in the right way or the way that I intended it to be received. Some of my words may be misconstrued, taken out of context. I'm willing to take the chance that might happen. There may be some emotions felt here tonight. There may be some confusion. There may be more questions might come out of this night. There most certainly will be need to be more, have more time given to understand a topic like we're talking about here tonight. And so my ask is this, just please stay through the whole message. None of the doors are ever locked. You could leave whenever you want to hear something that you really don't like, but I'd encourage you to stay through to the very end. And I also want to know that I'm really, really happy, even excited to take any questions that you might have, any critiques, any emotional pushback you might have on a subject like this, even your hate mail. I, I welcome if you, if you want to send me something like that, you can send it. If you want to tell me how wrong I am or what kind of a terrible person I am after you hear this message, that's okay. If you want to tear a strip out of me, you can. Just send it to me. You can email me all those kinds of messages to me at Jeff T at mynewhope.ca. And I'll be happy to get to that, every single one of those as soon as I can. Back to our elephant in the room. Does God condone? Does God condone slavery in the Bible? And here's the answer. I'm just gonna rip the band-aid right off, okay? I'm not gonna soft tiptoe around it. The answer is yes. He does. He does. And I'm going to share with you three reasons why I come to the conclusion, and you have to come to your own conclusion, I'm going to give you three reasons why I come to the conclusion that God condones slavery in the Bible. Here's reason number one, and it's your next fill-in. God only regulates the practice of slavery in the Bible, but he never condemns it. God only regulates the practice of slavery in the Bible, but he never condemns it. There is so much information about slavery in the Bible. It's overwhelming. Trust me this week. It is overwhelming. There was a difference between male slaves versus female slaves. There was a difference between Hebrew slaves versus Gentile slaves. There was a difference between debt slaves versus prisoner of war slaves. There were various lengths of time a person would be a slave before going free. There were various ways a slave could obtain their freedom if they wanted it. There was a clause where a slave could go free, but if they wanted to stay a slave forever, they could. There were various reasons a person might become a slave, either to escape from poverty or to make a better life for themselves or their family, to pay off a debt. Uh, they might have been a part of a wicked nation that was defeated in war, and instead of being slaughtered, they were made slaves. Think about this. Are you happy that we have a prison system today, or are you, are you, would you rather have no prisons and convicted felons just run around Canada doing whatever they want? Would you prefer that? I, don't, I wouldn't. They didn't have prison systems back then. So instead of killing someone, they said, okay, you can't keep doing all those crimes. You're going to be a slave instead. To me, it's a very simple solution to that aspect. 
There were protections on how a slave could be treated by his master. There were instructions on how a slave should treat his master. There were provisions mandated for when a slave would go free. When a slave would go free, the master would stock up the slave with a whole bunch of material goods, like a care package that would set them off on their new life, blessing them radically when they left. There was a culture of slavery that existed in the time of the Exodus, circa 1400 BC, and there was a, there was a culture of slavery that existed in the time of the Gospels, circa 1 AD. There is evidence that in certain circumstances, it was better to be a slave than it was to be free in the Bible. Now, there's so much information about slavery in the Bible, so much regulation of it, but you know what there isn't? No condemnation of it anywhere. Anywhere. Why not? Think, think about it. Why, why isn't there? God could have condemned it very easily. God has no problem condemning things. He condemns things all the time. All the time. He does so for other things that he deems immoral. Jesus could have finally come on the scene and declared all forms of slavery, all forms are wrong. Stop. But he doesn't come even close to doing that. God doesn't condemn the institution of slavery, nowhere in the Old Testament, nowhere in the New Testament. The closest he comes to saying it's bad is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And even here, it's not even painted as a terrible reality. I think this on your outline as well too. 1 Corinthians chapter 7 verses 20 to 21. Paul is writing to Christians in Corinth. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called or saved or became a Christian. Were you a bondservant, which is really doulos in the Greek? Were you, a, were you a slave when called? Don't be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. Paul tells believers to get their freedom if they can. But he also said to them not to worry about it if, they're, if they were a slave and they couldn't obtain their freedom. This can hardly be counted as, as condemning Slavery. So that's the first reason, because God doesn't condemn it. Here's the second reason why God condones slavery in the Bible. Slavery in its next villain. Slavery as an institution is not immoral. Slavery as an institution is not immoral. You might be thinking to yourself at this point, what is this guy talking about? He's standing there trying to tell me that slavery isn't immoral. That's what I'm trying to do, and that's why I'm bringing out the big guns for tonight. I got a prop for tonight. Okay. What's this? Is not a trick question, okay? What's this? All right, good job. You're tracking so far. Next question, not as easy. Is this is this shovel? Is it morally good or bad? Yeah, mixed answers. <laughs> Right? Is it good or bad? Look at them. Take, take your time. Yeah. I could, I could do some really good stuff with this. I could plant an incredible garden, feed my family, feed other people. I could dig a well. I could, build a, I could lay a foundation and build a home for me. I could build a home for homeless people. I could do a lot of really amazing things with this. You know what else I could do? Turn it around and assault someone with it. I could do both of those things. In this instance, the shovel could be good or bad, depending on what you do with it. Now, is slavery as an institution, as a practice, is it morally wrong? Don't think of the gross abuses of the slave trade. That was wicked. That was wrong. Don't think of the perversions of the institution or the practice of slavery. I'm just talking about the concept of one person's freedom being limited or totally restricted and living in subjection to another person's will. It doesn't seem desirable, but that's not my question. I'm asking, is it morally wrong to be in that situation? Is that system immoral in and of itself? Or is it only bad when bad people do bad things that were never supposed to be done in that kind of situation? Is it only bad when there's a bad master who treats his slaves poorly? What if every time the master was amazing, would he have any problems? If he just retreated like a friend, like a son, like you were blessed 
by the master always? I don't think we'd be having the same kind of conversation as we're having today if that was the case. And we know it definitely is not the case. But is it possible that the institution, the practice of slavery is not bad in and of itself, but bad people do bad things in any kind of institution that we can get our grubby little fingers on? We root marriage is good, and what do we do? We ruin it when we abuse our spouses or we're unfaithful. What is it? Well, marriage is bad. No, no, you were a jerk in it. That's the problem. We're the problem. The institutions aren't the problem. Slavery in the ancient Near East was used to get out of poverty. It was used to get training and education. It was used to better one's life. It was used to pay debts. It was more than not a choice, more often than not a choice. It took the place of welfare. It took the place of prisons. People entered into slavery back then in a similar way that men and women enter into the military today. They traded their freedom for a certain amount of time in exchange for some benefit to them. There were good things about the kind of slavery that was practiced. Yes, there were wicked atrocities that were practiced too, but I would argue that those wicked things were bad people doing bad things in a not bad institution. And so this reason number two that I, I believe that God doesn't condone slavery is because slavery as an institution is not immoral. Here's reason number three, my third reason why I believe God does not condone or condone slavery. It's this. It's the next filling. The institution of slavery is central to understanding the glorious reality of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The institution of slavery is central, its core, to our understanding of the glorious reality and, and the implications for our lives of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You cannot understand and experience the gospel of Christ apart from understanding slavery. Biblical Christianity is, at its core, slavery. To be a Christian is to be a slave. We are slaves. Apart from the grace of God, every single one of us is a very particular kind of slave. If you're a first-time guest, welcome to church. You're a slave. May or may not see you next week, but partying gift there, knowing what you really are. You might kick back at that label I just put on you. The religious leaders certainly kicked back when Jesus put that, that label on them back in the day. The Pharisees' response to Jesus telling them they were slaves can be found in John chapter 8, verses 31 to 33. It says, so Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free, which implies that they weren't what? Free. They answered him, we are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Are you kidding me? Never been slaves? Short-term and selective memories, I guess. They were slaves in Egypt. They were slaves in Babylon. As Jesus was speaking to them in this very moment, they were under Roman occupation and were subservient to Rome at this moment. But was Jesus talking to them about a physical form of slavery? No, he was not. What kind of slaves are we, all of us, apart from God's grace? We live in a free country, but you know what apart from God's grace all of us are? Slaves to sin. Slaves to sin. Jesus continues in John chapter 8, verse 34. After their response, he says this. Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Again, not a trick question here, but how many of us practice sin before we are saved by God's grace? All hands should go up, because that's all of us. And what a wicked, wicked slave master sin is. And by default, by our default position in this life, in this experience we call humanity, our default position is to bow our knees in allegiance to our master, sin. Here's our definition again of what a slave is. A person who is wholly subject to the will of another, one who has no will of his own, but whose person and services are wholly under the control of another. That's what we were to sin before God saved us. Sin owned us. Sin called the shots. When sin wanted us to do something, it aroused a desire in us that was irresistible to fight. And we obeyed his desires. You and I did, apart from the grace of God. We were born into this kind of slavery, not chosen for us, 
We see this picture from our study in Exodus, do we not? The Israelites were slaves in Egypt, and they had kids, and some of their kids were born into that identity, born into that experience. They knew nothing other than bondage and slavery. They were physically born into it. But you and I, were not physically born into slavery, we were spiritually born into it. We were born in the same spiritual slavery that our first parents, Adam and Eve, sold themselves into back in the Garden of Eden, when they chose sin as their master over God. And we're powerless to free ourselves from this kind of slavery. And you instinctively know you're powerless over sin every time you recognize that there are unhealthy habits and patterns in your life that you want to change, but you realize that you are totally powerless to change. Those of us who are familiar with uh, the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous realize that we hit this right out of the gate in step number one, which says this, step one of AA. We admitted we were powerless. I, didn't, I, I wasn't bringing a, a gun to a gunfight. I brought a knife to a gunfight every time and lost when it had its power over me. We admitted we were powerless over alcohol and that our lives had become unmanageable. I could not overcome it, I could not fight it, it owned me. And substitute alcohol for any other sin in your life. When it rang the bell, we jumped and we said, what do you want me to do next? That sin, leave me, leave, let's go. And every single one of us needed a power greater than ourselves to free us from out under that power that was over us. But... That's heavy, crummy news. You're a slave. Welcome to church. But you know what? There's actually really good news. It's called the gospel, right? It's good news. We've been redeemed out of our slavery. That's what Jesus came to do for us. Jesus came to redeem us. He came to buy us back. He came to liberate us from the slave market of sin that we were all a part of when he found us. Listen to some of Jesus' words near the very beginning of his three-year public ministry. He, in these words, hear what he's declaring that he's going to do and the reason he came. Luke chapter 4, verses 16 to 21. And he, Jesus, came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives. And recovering of sight to the blind. To set at liberty those who are oppressed. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today... This scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus came to set us free from our enslavement to sin. And not only did he come to set us free, he is our great redeemer. But at the same time, do you know what else he is? He's our ransom price paid. He redeems us, but he had to redeem us at a price. What price did he pay? gave his life for you and for me. Listen to 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 17 and 19. And if you call on him as Father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Jesus paid for our freedom from sin with his blood that was shed on the cross. And those who have put their faith in the finished work of Christ have had the power of sin broken over their life. Jesus has set us free. Whom the Son sets free is what? Indeed. Amen. Amen. So what next? That's amazing. You put your faith in Jesus. He breaks the bonds, the cords of sin. He opens up the prison door and beckons you to walk out of sin. And you're free. You're free. You and I are free. What do we do next? What's the point? What's the point of our freedom? What's the point of our redemption? 
The obvious answer is freedom, to enjoy our freedom, but freedom to do what? Can I tell you that is not to be set free in order that we can now go and finally, we're unhinged, to follow all of our whims and all of our dreams. And the only thing that was keeping us back was this slave master, Sin, who was ruining my party. Every t- I tried to turn left, Sin was ruining it. I tried to turn right, Sin was there. But now that Sin's gone, I can maximize my own, my own best life now. No. The bird proverb doesn't apply to us in our new free state. I don't even know the bird proverb. It goes like this. If you have a little bird and you set it away, set it free, and it comes back to you, it's yours. But if it never comes back, it never was yours. That, God doesn't do that with us. He doesn't say, go away, and then if you, if you feel like coming back, come back. But if not, you know, here's a couple bucks. Have a good life. Enjoy your freedom. No, God doesn't do that with us. We've been set free so that we can actually use our new freedom in the service of a brand new master. We can use our freedom now to serve God with our entire lives. My identity as a slave didn't change when Christ set me free. The only thing that has changed was the master that I serve now. Where I am no longer a slave to sin, I am now a slave of Jesus Christ. He is my master and he is yours if you are a Christian. Listen to the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 6, verse 16 to 22. Speaking to Christians in Rome. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as Slaves to righteousness leading to sanctification. For when you were a slave of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you've been set free from sin and become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and is end eternal life. There are many, many ways that we can understand our identity as Christians. And we love most of the other ones that aren't any, have anything to do with slavery. We love being a child of God. We love that. We love being a friend of God. Like, buddy, we love that idea. We love being a member of his body. We love being a part of his bride. That's honorable. But slave is one of the most important ones that we can identify as as a Christian. And it just happens to be the one that no one really talks about or gets excited about, but we should we are slaves. Jesus is our master. That's what we imply every time we call him what? Lord. When I pray and say, I'm, I call him Lord as a title, I'm not saying Lord. And I'm not thinking, you're the Lord of everyone else's life. <laughs> you're, you're, you're Jimmy's master and you're Susie's master, but we're just friends. When I pray Lord, I'm saying, Lord, you are my master and you own me and everything about me. That's what I'm saying when I call him that. So either keep calling him that and understand what you mean, or just don't call him Lord anymore. But Jesus is our master. We've been purchased by him. He owns us. 1 Corinthians 6, 19-20. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. See, the apostles of Christ, they love to identify themselves as slaves. Almost primarily Paul, Timothy, James, Peter, Jude. Every time they are, these are the writers of the New Testament. And so many times when you read through your Bible, chapter 1, verse 1, opens like this. Paul, a slave of Christ Jesus. Uh, James, 1-1. James, a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Peter, 2 Peter, 1-1. Simon Peter, a slave, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Jude 1, Jude, a slave of Jesus Christ and brother of James. When you think back to James, actually, it's amazing because James was the half-brother of Jesus, we understand. He's not going around saying, I probably do this. Uh, Listen to what I have to say. Why, James? Because Jesus is my actual brother. I'm going to lead out with that. But James doesn't. He's my master. He's my master. I'm his slave. 
You know who else identified as a slave? And this might help you if you have a hard time owning this identity for yourself. Jesus did. Jesus did. Listen to what Paul says about him in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 to 8. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a slave. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Slavery has everything to do with obedience, and that's all Jesus did his entire life. He only obeyed. I only do the Father's will. I only do what's pleasing to Him. I must keep on my Father's business. Not my will, but yours be done. Obey, 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 and His obedience led Him to the cross. Then He was glorified. But Jesus identifies with this identity. Now, what a glorious and simple way to understand our life as a follower of Jesus. I cannot tell you, well, I can tell you, I'm going to tell you right now, how this actually impacted me so strongly this week in my own personal relationship with Jesus. My prayers are changing. The way I'm understanding my life is changing. I'm not, I'm not forming my understanding of my life and my purpose around my wants and my desires. I'm changing. Because you know what? Do you know what, Matt, how much our wants and desires matter if we're slaves? Zero. It doesn't, it doesn't matter what I want, what my dreams are for my life. If I'm a slave at the root, at the core, do you know the only thing that matters to me? What do you want me to do? What do you want me to do? Good thing is good, right? What do you, good Lord, good, what do you want me to do? How do you want me to live? How do you want me to spend my time, my energy, my money? My life is yours, Master. Tell me what it's changing the way I'm praying. It's changing the way I'm, I'm shaping my life this week. And it's freeing. You can do that, or you can try to be in control of your own life and figure everything out. I'd argue that that's what got us into our predicament in the first place when we cried out for Him to save us, if we were driving the car of our life. Weren't we not? Being the, the shot caller and the boss. Trade that. You, you call all the shots now. So here's the logic. Follow me. Christianity is slavery. Christianity is really, really good. Therefore, God cannot condemn the institution of slavery as something immoral because being a slave of Jesus Christ is literally the best thing that anyone could ever experience. Okay, ready? We can let go of the elephant's ears. For now. Just for now. I'm going to close by asking a couple of questions. Why do people hate slavery so much? With a visceral reaction to it. I'm going to, I'm going to posit two reasons why we do. Number one, we hate injustices done to our fellow man. We hate it. When someone's abused and hurt and taken advantage of, something recoils in us, and rightfully so. We should hate that. And that's why when we see some forms of slavery being done, that's what happens in us. Good, right, and moral. But here's the second reason why I think we hate the idea of slavery so much. It's more hidden and secretive and it's deeper in our heart and our soul, but it's this. I think we hate the idea of our personal sovereignty being threatened. So we hate anything that even hints at or suggests that we are not in control of our own lives. And we're not the owners of our own lives. Someone else is. And I think our flesh hates that concept. I can't speak for you, but for me, I love this kind of slavery. I love it. Because Jesus is King of Kings and He's Lord of Lords. He's the Master of Masters. He is good. He is wise. He is generous. He has a plan to prosper us. He has freed us from the power of sin. He has conquered death for us. He has given us eternal life. He has given us a future hope. He's smarter than us. He's better than us in every way. And he wants me to be with him. Not only as a slave, he turns his slaves into sons and daughters. And we also become his friends without ever losing our identity as being a slave. So what about you? In light of what we've heard about Christ, are you pro-slavery or anti-slavery when it comes to understanding your relationship with him? Let's pray. Father, I, I, 
We, I just love you. I just love you. Jesus, we just love you. I love you even when hard things are in the Bible. still love you. Lord, help us. Help us to understand the riches of the scriptures. Help us to not be afraid to, to wade into areas that we would never choose to wade ourselves, but bring us through there. But bring us out on the other side with a deeper appreciation and understanding of how awesome you are, because that's the point of the Bible. So even when we talk about slavery, Lord, let us do it in a way that lets us behold the way that you love us, the way that you saved us, the way that you are an incredible master, and there's no life comparable other than the life that's with you now and forever. I pray for all my, all my brothers and sisters in you that are here tonight, Lord, and any of uh, friends or, or guests that are here. If anyone here, Lord, is a slave to sin as we speak and they've never ever received the gift of freedom that you purchased for us on the cross, I pray, Lord, that you would just rip them out of the slavery to sin and bring them into the kingdom. Open the eyes of their hearts so they can see how beautiful you are, Jesus. How amazing you are. And let them walk out of that old life and into that new life here tonight. Let faith be put in you tonight, we pray. For the rest of us to strengthen our faith, strengthen us, Lord. Help us to process this stuff throughout the week in our home groups, in our devotion time. Wrestle with it. But lead us into the truth, Lord. We love you. We pray all these things in your sweet and your powerful name, Lord Jesus. Amen. Hey, thanks for being with us for this study. Before you go, I want to invite you to our online services. They're updated every Monday afternoon, but you can stream them all week on Facebook, YouTube, and our website at mynewhope.ca online. If you've never given your life to Jesus, then you need to go to mynewhope.ca gospel right now. You'll find a short video where we share the best news you'll ever hear in your life. It's more important than whatever else you're doing, so go there right now. If God has blessed you through this message, we'd love to hear about it. Shoot us an email at info at mynewhope.ca and let us know how God has impacted your life through His Word. If you'd like to support the Bible teaching ministry of New Hope through financial giving, you can also do that through our website at mynewhope.ca slash give. And finally, we want to invite you to follow our Facebook page at facebook.com slash mynewhope.ca for all the latest updates and encouragements throughout the week. We love you, Uppercase C Church. Be blessed.